Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown, and this is the final week of our summer hiatus. We'll be reaching all the way back to September of 2017 for some extra material from my chat with Dr. Dan Bins. And since Dan's an old friend, it doesn't take much to get us talking. Along the way, we discuss Dan's work with the Audio Kinetics Experiments Lab at RMIT, the mystery of number stations, and immersive experiences in film and elsewhere. Now, I don't have any particular media recommendations this week, although I did recently see Gilda, starring Rita Hayworth, and Billy Wilder's classic noir Double Indemnity, Thank You Again Library. So maybe my recommendation is just that. Go to your local library and pick an old movie at random. See if you like it. As mentioned a moment ago, this will be the last week of our summer hiatus, and while next week won't be a return to the normal schedule, it will be something that I think you're going to enjoy. But for now, we join this conversation already in progress. Inserts were swearing at the television, and you're yeah, all the way there. Those clowns in the, <laughs> those clowns in Canberra, etc. Yeah, yeah. Stuff costs more than it used to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Which I actually did have that conversation with someone the other day. It was nothing to do with being a dad, just being of a certain age and being able to be like, yes, I can recall the first time they had, you know, bottles of Coke in the machine, and it was 600 milliliters, and it was a dollar fifty, and that was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember um, eighty cent cans at the canteen at school, which I believe even then was something ridiculous, like a 65% markup <laughs> for the canteen. So, yeah. But no, I'm, I find myself doing the same thing. The joys of having something set in your mind at an early age of how things should be. Yes. And it's, it's yes. then exacerbated by the fact that I then change countries and the price of everything is different. Yeah. I'm reading a really interesting book at the moment on, it's written by a pilot, a commercial airline pilot, and he talks about jet lag, but he also talks about place lag because he doesn't necessarily get jet lag because wherever he flies in the world, he stays on his home time zone. So it very often means he'll be in some random country. It's his lunchtime, but it's four o'clock in the morning, but he gets place lag instead. So what will happen is because of the nature of air travel, you know, you can be around the world in far too short a time, like it used to be a four-week boat trip or whatever. He'll instead experience this thing where everything is suddenly different, like your senses are just completely filled with other, and it takes him much longer to catch up with place lag than it does with jet lag. So I, I often find that talking to people around my age like yourself, and we have like a nostalgia lag where we have these moments where we jump back into the past and then realise just how completely different everything is now. <laughs> And nostalgia is about trying to reclaim the past, obviously, but realizing the impossibility of that task becomes more acute with age, I think. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like you go to explain the context of something and realize how much of a run-up you have to do before you can even start to explain. Yeah, 
Oh, and then there was this other thing, and then, oh, there was this thing we used to do. Hang on, let me just explain it. Right, 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 yeah. This is how it normally was, and this is why this thing was out of the ordinary. But first, yeah. I have to set the scene. Picture, yeah. Sissy, 1922. <laughs> Four hours later. Oh, you just had to be there. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, so, so uh, were you teaching today? Yeah, I had a class. I was off last week because I had dental extraction which wasn't very good so it was mid-semester break last week the dentist had told me that it was reasonably not urgent but you know when a, a professional of any stripe sort of has that tone where they're like look i recommend quite highly that this thing happens sooner rather than later it was preventative rather than remedial i was gonna say so you were a couple of meetings away from getting that tone of uh, you want to bet yeah or you know a 3 a.m trip to a and &E for emergency surgery so it was a couple of days of discomfort versus you know again that 3 a.m trip which i was pretty happy about so yeah I, I spent a lot of time bumming around home and catching up on netflix and not watching anything that i was supposed to watch <laughs> which is fine i guess that's what happens but back into it today i had quite a bit to catch up on editing a short film at the moment that we shot at the start of august which is fun and confusing because I haven't edited at any length for, for quite a while and all the keyboard shortcuts have changed and the layout <laughs> of the software has changed. I've also been asked to help write an audio kinetic opera. All right, I, I cannot let that one just go by, Dan. What, what the hell is an audio kinetic opera? <laughs> so the, I'm running a, a studio in the media program this semester. We run studios every semester. We can make them up or they can be linked to our expertise. And I tend to do weird and wonderful ones like I did old media last semester where we looked at kind of eight millimeter films and radio drama and, and just sort of what can we learn from old media practice in the age of the digital or whatever. So this semester I'm co-teaching with digital media and they're mostly sound design students. It's called the mechanics of immersion. So what techniques can you use with camera and with sound design that will sort of dissolve the distance between viewer and screen? What leads to a particularly immersive film or, or whatever? Um, so we spent the first five, six weeks looking at specifically at film and the audiovisual relationship. And then we're moving into now kind of VR, embodied experiences, installation work. And my co-teacher is a, a composer, artist, sound designer, and he does a lot of work with 4D cinema and I don't, I don't mean 4d we have a very movie world understanding of what 4d is which is when it <laughs> rains with the chairs move. Yeah, when it rains on screen you get sprayed with water but this there's a 4d chair downstairs at work that costs umpteen amounts of money it can pull two and a half g i think oh my god a lot of 4d like moving chair type simulator things it feels quite tame and there's often a lag my first experience of the 4d chair was i was left alone in a dark room it was effectively like a storeroom with the chair and a massive tv and i watched iron man and okay i can see this this could go well yeah there were moments i mean it rewrites the language that we academics use particularly to talk about film because when it's just sound and vision there's a very clear director's idea of where the audience is meant to be you have a point of view whether it's a character's point of view or whether it's like a more omniscient kind of this is an establishing shot thing but if you're in the chair and Iron Man is punching a character and the chair rockets back there's a real disjuncture like I couldn't figure out whose perspective I was meant to be okay 
Like, were you getting the impact of the punch back up your arm, or were you being thrown across the room? Or was I meant to be Iron Man? Like, was I meant to be kind of leaning forward and feeling a right, sort of leaning in and throwing with the right? It was really bizarre. The most effective moments were when he was flying, obviously, because mm -hmm. he's the only one in the frame, and it's not just kind of like a slow sway left and right. Like, the chair was actually encoded to move as he was moving, and it was quite visceral. Anyway, so... Following on from that, the 4D chair is being used now by my colleague Darren to write a couple of short operas, kind of installation things where you line up and then you get 10 minutes alone in the chair to have this kind of audiovisual immersive kinetic kind of experience with eyelid projection and sound design and really interesting stuff. So okay, you just said eyelid projection. Yeah. What? Glasses. So you put glasses on, you close your eyes, and it projects the flashes of light and shapes and stuff on your eyelids. This is like some Clockwork Orange stuff, Dan. A little bit. Particularly the other one that he's working on that he didn't get me involved in, which is a shame, because I would have loved it, was based on Stalker, which is the Tarkovsky film, which is kind of philosophical science fiction weirdo stuff. I think we've talked about Jeff Vandermeer before. Stalker's very in the vein. Wrote a steampunk anthology. Yeah, but also wrote the Southern Reach trilogy, which is very kind of eco sci-fi. Stalker's a bit like that, but it's very Kafka-esque, and there's a little old Russian lady who comes and knocks on your door and says, come with me, and then you're captured and thrown in a cell. And Anyway, so that was... That was one of the things he's doing. The other one is based on number stations. I don't know if you know about number stations. That, well, let's see. There's the seven train. There's the... <laughs> that was one of two jokes I could have gone with. It was either that or go with Stations of the Cross. Yeah, got yeah. the secular one. So tell me about number stations. Number stations, they still exist. They're shortwave radio broadcasts that were, a number of them were established post-World War II, and they're continuously broadcasting. Originally, they were set up with reel-to-reel -reel tape players that would loop over and over and over again, and they essentially broadcast usually numbers, so a sequence of numbers, so you'll just hear them say seven. 12, 19, 24, whatever it happens to be. And occasionally some of them will play snippets of music, parts of someone reading out a novel. No one has any idea what they're for. The prevailing theory is that they were used to communicate on a sort of open frequency with agents in the field. So by the Russians or the Germans or even the British had a couple. And a number of them are still running, even though the places of broadcast may have changed. But still no one has any idea what these things are for. And if you listen to them, they're really creepy. Yeah, if I recall correctly, the Dharma Initiative set them up around the island and you can use it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously, it's been picked up in anything and everything. Abrams, so Lost in Fringe and a few other ones. There was a very, very bad movie called Number Station a couple of years ago with John Cusack just phoning it in as he has done with everything. Oh, poor John Cusack. We want better for him. It was 2006. He's written this thing and he, he was concerned that it was, you know, it's very operatic and the, the music is very epic and it's just kind of overlaid with all these weird numbers read out in German. And he was just very concerned that it didn't have any kind of drama or art. So I was brought in to have a think about some kind of vague story that we can lay over the top of it. And did you tell him it stinks? No. <laughs> no. Did you crush that particular dream? We're all constructive. Look, listen, it's a, it's a nice <laughs> toy, but 
I don't think it's gonna be anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, so that that's I'm working on that at the moment. It's just very weird being in a creative space again after really not being in a creative space for a while. But it's fun. What you were saying actually reminded me when I was in Los Angeles last year, so a year before last, I went to the Broad, which is a new modern art museum right next to the Disney concert hall that looks like a crumpled up bit of olive oil. Yep, yep, yep. And they had an installation where it was sort of this kind of S-shaped room, and every wall of the room was a screen. So you followed, like, so that you walked in and there was a screen behind you and a screen to either side and one in front of you, and you followed that around. And then there was another one. So you followed your way around the S. Yeah. What it was is on every wall, there was a different video of a different room where someone was playing music. It was all in the same house. Like it was one big old farmhouse. Yeah. And in one of the rooms, like, was someone sitting at the foot of the bed playing guitar. And there was someone asleep in the bed. And you would occasionally see the person move kind of in their sleep. Mm -hmm. And another one, there was a guy in a bathtub singing and playing the ukulele. And there was someone playing drums in, in front of a fireplace. And what it was is that depending on where you were in the room, you would hear different bits of music. They were all playing the same music that linked up together, but they were playing it slightly out of sequence with one another, like a round. Right, right. This guy, and Big Shaw, he was Scandinavian, <laughs> had written like a 72-hour opera. Oh my god. And so had filmed these people playing it continuously in loops until he got the loops that he liked. Yeah. And I remember just like, because as you move, because you hear something finish, and something else pick up and it also maps to where you are in the room and it was just this really intense kind of weird experience and so yes I'm very interested when I hear stuff around even if it's implied motion within a space linking up with sort of sound cues and stuff yeah. and, and like with all good interesting things it makes me want to try and explain it to people who know more about it than I do <laughs> For example, one former guest of the show, Lucy Harrison, who's a composer and sound designer, I want to like get her to listen to this bit. I'm like, okay, you tell me what you think. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that's kind of the fun thing about the studios is that as much as I've run studios on storytelling and script writing and weirdo film philosophy stuff, like the nature of the frame in the digital age and weird shit like that, the good thing is that, you know, they allow that kind of freedom, that kind of intellectual curiosity, and it's very much bringing the students in to that process as well. Like, we're very open about the fact that we don't have any answers to these questions. You're going to help us answer them. And particularly with this one where, I mean, obviously I have some experience with film, and Darren has a great deal of experience with sound design and weirdo Kafka-esque operas. <laughs> but together, we're sort of getting the students to help us answer the question, you know, what is immersion? We've gotten them out to do things like go on a roller coaster or wander around Ikea or <laughs> go to some art exhibitions or sit in a park for three hours and what are some of the, the sensory inputs that you're picking up that lend themselves to a sense of flow or a sense of oneness or a sense of immersion in the space and I, I, it's followed on from a number of immersive film experiences that I had kind of in the last couple of years where I've just the world's kind of fallen away just wanting to know are there any specific techniques or is there a way of kind of encoding immersive cues in film? And then that's kind of dovetailed into looking back at things that I've experienced like installations and, you know, like The Drowned Man, which I think I talked to you about, um, which was the four-story immersive theatre thing in London. Both wanting to investigate and write about, but also to write and create some things that attempt to use some of these techniques as well. And that's good, because the minute you were saying a sort of immersive film experiences, I realized I have three, and all of them have to do with being scared. 
Right. So it was when I went to see Stir of Echoes, starring one Kevin Bacon. Yeah. I walked into a theater not knowing what movie I was seeing, whereas like, I was with some friends and right. we bought tickets to something and like last minute changed theaters that we were going to, oh, let's go over to this one. Yeah. That's a movie about a haunting. For the first like maybe 30 minutes of that movie, it's just this sort of suburban drama and then he gets hypnotized at a party and things go pear-shaped. And it's like you're experiencing that with the character yeah. because you don't know what kind of movie you're in. Yeah. And so when he starts seeing ghost people and like flashes on the screen, it's like, oh shit, oh no, the fear is real. And I think that's so rarely happens nowadays you know i mean we're gonna go down a bit of a path of back in our day but we had quite a few experiences i don't know i mean i can't speak for you but i had quite a few experiences in my youth where there was no twitter there was no wikipedia there was no i didn't have access to the kind of massive criticism critical mass <laughs> i see what you did there Sorry, that was terrible. But that we have now, where even if you're trying to avoid spoilers, you have some sense of what the film is about. So we very rarely have that, have those kind of going in blind things anymore, and I think that helps with immersion. Anyway, that was number one. What was your number two? Uh, number two was in a class of a friend of yours, Professor Bruce Isaacs. Yeah. Where we were doing Hitchcock uh-huh. for the week, and I had watched Rear Window and Psycho and The Vertigo. Yeah. For a minute, like I had watched all three of these films in the week leading up to this class. And I went into the class and I was ready to talk and I had my thoughts about how Rear Window was the best of them and the rest could go suck it. Because I was young and stupid. <laughs> young and stupid. Um, but, but then, then I, I... I agree. Like, I agree with you, by the way. Rear Window's very good. Yeah. Um, Bruce turned off the lights <laughs> and we watched the bit in Psycho where the guy is coming up the stairs. Oh, yes. The greatest shot in Hitchcock. And he gets to the landing... And you see Norman as mother fly across in a diagonal so quickly. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. I'd seen this movie. I'd seen the Vince Vaughn remake of this movie in the theaters. Thanks, Gus Van Sant. Yeah. And so I knew it was coming. But I gave the biggest jump of my life the minute you see that wig cross frame. It's funny, like, I think in my notes that I sent you, I said that, you know, my real kind of awakening in terms of what film could be and do happened in my first year of uni, where I had a wonderful tutor who passed away recently. His name was Hunter Corday. And he exposed us to a great many things. And one of them was Psycho. And he was the first person that I heard talking about film in a way that made me want to think about, read about, write and create film. Just utterly inspiring and challenging and confronting. So I I absorbed everything that he told us to watch and I'm still absorbing, you know, his list. I inherited quite a few of his books and DVDs so I'm still catching up. As you say, like I watched Psycho for the first time very ill-advisedly late at night (laughs) and I lived in sort of greater western Sydney at this stage in a house on acreage um, surrounded by very very tall gum trees and it was a windy night if you could conjure up the worst possible evening to watch any horror movie or anything remotely suspenseful and I was terrified in the most (laughs) in the most invigorating kind of way like I'm yeah Horror is not the first thing I go to at any point. I was in it in that moment. And it was funny, I I made my partner watch Psycho with me 
a few days later, in the middle of the day, sunny day, and again, exactly that shot that you were talking about. Everything else I kind of was okay with, like Chow scene and Anthony Perkins just generally being amazingly creepy. Fine with that, but looking at that in a new kind of way, as you do when you rewatch something. But that shot made me jump again. I think it does every time I watch it. I remember us having this conversation after I listened to a particular Radio Lab episode. Yeah. Your average edit on a, on a scene is going to be about 16 seconds, yeah. which is about the human blink cycle. Yeah. And I think it's something about the staging of when the event happens in that shot, mm -hmm. where it is in the exact wrong place for expectation. Yeah. And it's even in the wrong place for earlier than expectation. Okay. It's just like, it just jams itself in there. And it's not even about editing. You know, I think that's the mastery of Hitchcock. It was never just editing. It was the angle, it was the staging. He uses staging and production design as another editing tool in a way like he frames things in a way that he's just a master of it and and that angle is so off kilter you know it's just such a bizarre angle that you're as soon as you cut to it continuity is broken and you're sort of trying to reorient yourself and he doesn't let you orient yourself before mother burst out of the door and stabbed the detective so he's just conjuring he's just playing with you <laughs> as hitchcock does so well so that was number two what was the third one? Number three was something where, in a, an episode that's just come out in the chronology of this, I talk a little bit with Colin Mulcairin about what constitutes a twist versus what constitutes a swerve. Okay. And a twist is something that you don't expect. It's a change in the story you didn't see coming. Mm -hmm. That you see as a viewer and experience in the moment. Mm -hmm. Right? So, end of Sixth Sense is a twist. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Yeah. A swerve is something that plays with the medium and the type of story that you're in. Okay. It expects you, by your knowledge of that medium, to expect the twist. Oh, okay. So, like, you've seen enough scary slasher movies, you know that the killer is going to sit up. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, when that killer goes down and the person creeps up on them to see if they're still dead, you know that jump scare is coming. You're there. Yeah. And so what a swerve will do is when, you know, Nev Campbell is reaching down for the mask of the ghost face killer in Scream. Yeah. A, a movie with a swerve would have something happen behind her. Okay. Or have something else entirely happen. Like, for example, like all the lights go out or something like that. Uh, so okay. it's a wrestling term, which where you're a smart mark in the audience and you're looking at this going, okay, I know we're coming to the end of a TV show and the title match has started and everyone looks knackered and I don't think there's going to be a title change so I know I can sit comfortably and something crazy will happen right you off guard because you've already relaxed so it's, so it's is it a subversion of genre tropes it is it doesn't always have to be a subversion of them it's just a subversion of maybe some of the the narrative tropes, some of the easy answers okay and is it is it like the the bathroom cupboard door mirror closing and no one being there and then there's the cut and they're in the shower or something like it's, yeah it's the edgar wright cut of Shaun of the dead just a slight yeah and just yes. a slight surprise oh not a slight surprise but just something off the path yeah or, um. and the reason i brought it up in relation to this last immersive experience is i went with our mutual friend annie mm -hmm. to see the conjuring again having no <laughs> idea what it is i watched that 
for the studio. I just found it on Netflix and I thought, well, I need something that has reasonable critical acclaim and it didn't hurt that James Wan is actually an alumni of RMIT. There you go. So I was able to plug him a bit. So tell me, what, what was the moment? Well, what it is, again, not knowing, all I know is that any sometimes like scary movies. Yeah. And we were going and it's like, oh, it's some, some movie called The Conjuring. And I'm like, okay, Conjuring, it's going to be, it's probably going to be like ghosts and stuff. And it was a weird combination of sort of ghost story and exorcism story. But again, with the theater environment, mm-hmm. you're in a dark room with a giant screen mm-hmm. and huge sound. I have not been so effectively scared in a movie in a long time. And again, the reason it's a swerve is because you know. Again, you've got my example. The cop character sitting in the kitchen, fiddling with his walkie-talkie. Yeah. He looks out the window, and we get a long-ass shot of those like sheets blowing in the wind. Yeah. And he sees a flicker, and he sees a face between them. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts back, and it's nothing. Yeah. And then he puts the walkie-talkie down, and he starts to very slowly walk outside. And there was an audible, visceral sound <laughs> in that theater of everyone going, just to just to, to throw back to Edgar Wright, his fake trailer from Grindhouse, where it's like, yes. if you're thinking of investigating the face and the sheets in the clothesline, don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it's that kind of, that thing of we all know what's going to happen, and because the filmmaker knows what we think is going to happen, yeah, we yeah. get a lot of playing with that, like, and I think the very first time that you openly see a ghost in that movie, it's so effective, it's like, yeah, you know, you, you've seen those, like, half-seen things in the corners, and little flashes, and suddenly, in the middle of a perfectly normal pan, again, at right at that point, not where you expect a thing to happen, but not even where you expect an early thing to happen, roughly in between and the pan doesn't slow down as suddenly there's a dead little girl crouching on top of a dresser yeah, yeah. and you get like a split second to clock her and then she jumps on the protagonist but and that but like, that's it i mean uh, and i mean it's kind of like the jaws effect right where you're it's so effectively seeded and set up it's it's i just found it a really good story and i think the strength of that film and i don't think i'm the first person to say it but the strength of the film is that he lent into all the tropes in a really big way he didn't try and subvert them too much he played a little bit with timing and a few other things but he mostly focused on the characters on their experience and you develop sympathy for them to the point where you know when the mum becomes possessed you're at a point where you really 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 don't want anything like that to happen so when it does happen you're like oh god you're in it for the rest of the film at that point yeah and also again playing with those tropes it's like well up until that point the body count in this movie has been relatively low yeah and again knowing the genre you can look at it and go okay the kid's probably not gonna bite it yeah and the other kid's probably not gonna bite it and oh, the mum's been really nice. I don't, I don't think they could... Like, she's been protecting the kids. I don't think she, she'll bite. The dad might. Oh, I don't know. Or maybe it's a movie where nobody dies. I don't know. And then yeah. you see the mum possessed, and you go, oh, is this going to take a turn and become one of those movies where to get rid of the ghost is to kill the mother or something like that? Like, it makes you start guessing of what kind of movie am I in. Yeah, and it, it was... A, I mean, the casting was just superb in that film because it really is a film full of supporting actors. It's a film full of that guy and that girls, you know, like mm-hmm. the Ron Livingston, who I just know from Office Space. And, you know, Patrick Wilson, who I've just seen in a bunch of things. And Vera Farmiga is amazing, obviously. And I can't remember the name of the actress that played the mother, but the only other thing that I know her from 
was that she's Rob's ex-girlfriend in High Fidelity. <laughs> Which one? They're all his ex I know, I know. They're, she plays a sort of depressive type character. Oh, is the one with their mutual breakups. Yes, yes. So it was just kind of a like, oh, it's that person. But no one with enough kind of star power to overtake the ensemble. And yeah, it was, it was a fascinating film and gave me a lot of material to talk about with jump scares and sound design. The sound design in that film was incredible. By the way, Dan, it was 3618 for your first super. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> wow, I'm, I'm rusty. I'm rusty. And on that note... Yeah. 